Not everything that happens in Las Vegas stays in Vegas. This decision opens the door for legal sports betting nationwide. Yeah, but that's not why progressives should be happy about it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I'll explain. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. I am from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast in Queso and Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, and in Round Mountain, California on KKRN, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. And there is plenty to be, um, actually, to feel pretty good about today for a change on today's show. Oh, yeah, I like days like that. You won't have to, you know, feel like you need to throw yourself all over a bridge after living it, li- listening to today's show. <laughs> I may want to, but you don't need to. Um, it was primary election day on Tuesday in Idaho, Oregon, Nebraska, and the great state of Pennsylvania. Uh, where we have been warning for, oh, Desi doing what, about 15 years now? Oh, give or take. About the horrible 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, which voters across most of that state are still forced to use if they wish to participate in their own elections. Uh, as we have noted for an absurdly long time, to little avail, Aside from those systems being 100% unverifiable, their use means that when those touchscreens break down, unlike with uh, with hand-marked paper ballots, when those touchscreens break down, voters cannot vote. And so, like clockwork, uh, what do you know? In uh, For voters at Lion's Pride Restaurant in York Township, Pennsylvania, on Tuesday, according to Fox 43... Many voters were none too happy after they were told that voting machine card readers were down for about an hour as polls opened in the morning during rush hour before work. The machines weren't up and running until around 7.30 a.m., said Glenn Smith, solicitor of uh, York County Board of Elections. He said we had provisional ballots there. However, it's been policy that we have had that we have 10 per party 
at each of the precincts. That's all? Yep. Unfortunately, he says there were more than 10 people for each of the parties that were there. So the incident caused issues for more than 20 people, some of whom work outside of your county and could not make it back in order to vote. Yes, those voters were disenfranchised. Uh, so this is, don't throw yourself over that bridge yet. This is just the, this is the darkest, but things are going to get better from here, I promise. Emmy Frost, a uh, campaign volunteer, said it was very frustrating. I felt bad for people because they couldn't vote. They had places to be. Some people actually drove here from Maryland and then had to go back to work. One York Township voter said it was a little disappointing. We just thought we would get this done early because I had an appointment and we wanted to get all of this done before the rain came. And boy, howdy. Did the rain come to the East Coast? Oh, yeah. It's been an inc- an incredibly intense storm slamming the Northeast right now. Speaking of things that you have been warning about for <laughs> yes. some 15 years. Uh, as for those folks who uh, weren't able to make it back by the 8 p.m. deadline to vote on Tuesday in York County, Pennsylvania, Glenn Smith Uh, with the uh, York County Board of Elections, said they tried to do everything that they could to Mm. correct the situation. He said, what we are able to do is identify a polling place that is located close to where the person is so so that if they need to, they can go vote at a different polling location, said Smith. Well, that's not everything they could do. Well, yeah, because you know what would have been easier? Providing enough goddamn emergency paper ballots for all voters as election integrity folks have been begging Pennsylvania to do for years. Even, by the way, under their previous uh, Democratic secretary of state who went to court to fight against that crazy idea. Of course, uh, now I want to throw myself over a (laughs) bridge. Of course, as we uh, we've also uh, discussed for a long time, uh, plans to replace such machines in states like Pennsylvania and Georgia and Tennessee and many other states who are in the process of purchasing new computer voting systems because they think that new computer systems are much more secure than older ones. Uh, Many of those states and counties, including here in Los Angeles County, the largest voting jurisdiction in the world or in the nation, at least, um, many of those uh, places are are moving to systems that they call paper ballot systems, but they're actually computer ballot marking devices that will similarly force voters to use a touchscreen in order to print out a computer marked paper ballot that is then counted by an optical scanner. And yes, when those systems go down, we will have the exact same problem all over the country. Add to that, uh, by the way, those computer-marked paper ballots, not hand-marked, but computer-marked, they can't be known to have been verified as accurate by any voter after an election is done. And most of them trick you into thinking that you are verifying the computer printout, the human-readable portion of it, but in fact... Uh, It is the unreadable barcodes on those computer printed ballots that these scanners actually actually use, actually read to tally results. So don't be fooled. Uh, No matter how much folks like uh, me yell about this uh, for no matter how many years, it seems like we never learn. So I guess I'll just have to keep yelling 
And I hope you will join me. That's much more productive than jumping <laughs> off a bridge. True. Uh, so uh, more now on the actual reported results of Tuesday's races, whether they are verified or not. Uh, as we always warn, you know, these are just the reported results. They are verified by essentially no one at this hour. It often takes days, weeks, months, years. Uh, for problems to emerge, as uh, as uh, if you didn't hear yesterday's show, you can uh, tune in to find out about what we've learned about an election two weeks ago in Tennessee and an election several months ago in, was it Virginia? Yes. I think it was Virginia. Yes, it was Virginia, uh, where it looks like the Democrats should, in fact, have taken over the Virginia House of Delegates, but didn't. So... Go download that at bradblog.com to find out why if you missed it. All right. The biggest story on Tuesday uh, in the uh, primaries in those four states for now was the number of women who ran and did very well, reportedly, in several of the uh, states which held uh, primaries on Tuesday, particularly, yes, in Pennsylvania. As Trip Gabriel at uh, New York Times reports, a state representative, an Air Force veteran, and two high-powered lawyers, all women, won Democratic House primaries on Tuesday in Pennsylvania, where a record number of women ran for House seats in a year of intense political enthusiasm among female Democrats. I wonder why. It was a night of victories for at least seven Democratic women running for the U.S. House in a state that has an all-male congressional delegation of 20 and a state house dominated by male politicians. Yes, there are no women serving in the U.S. House for the great state of Pennsylvania. Uh, they also have an all-male uh, statewide representation at the uh, at the state level for the uh, state offices and in the U.S. Senate. Female candidates showed strength in nearly every region of the state, from the Philadelphia suburbs to the conservative Southwest. Madeline Dean, the state house member, Chrissy Houlihan, the veteran, Mary Gay Scanlon, one of the lawyers, each one in Philadelphia suburban districts that they are now favored to carry in November, according to uh, the AP. Scanlon prevailed in a Democratic primary field that included five other women. Wow. The largest number of female Democrats in any congressional primary race in the nation this year, perhaps ever, I might think. Six women running for the nomination. Uh, their primary victories uh, all raise the likelihood of women finally cracking the state's all-male congressional delegation. The women won in districts that were redrawn to replace a gerrymandered Republican map that the state Supreme Court ruled was illegal back in January in the new map of the state's 18 House districts and the ebullience it set off among uh, Democrats hoping to capture the House of Representatives across the country in the midterms put Pennsylvania front and center among the four states that held the primaries on Tuesday. Uh, Trump, President Trump, narrowly won Pennsylvania, you'll recall, in 2016, at least as far as we know. Can't be verified, never was. And, uh, in fact, that state will be very critical to determining whether Republicans or Democrats win control of the House in November. Nationwide, Democrats need to flip uh, about two dozen 
Republican-held seats in order to gain a majority in the House this November. Under the new congressional map in the Keystone State, Democrats have a shot at flipping at least three and uh, possibly as many as six seats this fall. Uh, most in counties around Philadelphia. But the National Republican Congressional Committee, the party's chief spending arm, is not easily seeding those races in those Philadelphia suburbs. The committee has reserved almost $8 million in television advertising for the fall in the Philadelphia market. Just in Philadelphia. Just in Philadelphia. Wow. And six months out, they are already reserving that much time uh, with that much money in just this one state, and it's actually just for two seats uh, that they're hoping to uh, hang on to. And, you know, we're still six months away. That is easily the uh, largest early spending commitment of any region across the country so far. Most of the money, as I say, will be aimed at just two competitive districts north of Philadelphia that, that are considered to be toss-ups this fall. Both have been Republican-held for a long time, thanks in no small part to the gerrymandering in, in, uh, in Pennsylvania. But Democrats think they have a shot at winning those. And it wasn't just women who performed well on Tuesday. So specifically did progressives. A trio of moderate Democrats went down to more liberal opponents on Tuesday night in key House primaries across the country. The latest skirmishes in the battle for the direction of the party, the heart of the Democratic Party that one national Democrat described to Talking Points Memo as non-ideal outcomes. <laughs> Depends on your perspective, I they guess. They were not happy about some of those races, the national uh, Democrats. In the biggest race, uh, the most surprising, really, uh, former Congressman Brad Ashford, Democrat from Nebraska, a so-called moderate who had uh, the support of the national Democrats, including the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the uh, the DCCC, as we call them. Uh, Brad Ashford lost to nonprofit healthcare executive Kara Eastman in a, a stunning race. And it is stunning whenever anyone named Brad loses anything. <laughs> Again, depends on your perspective. But uh, particularly here, it was stunning. Eastman uh, had run a uh, she had run hard on universal Medicare for all. And she supports decriminalizing marijuana. Brad Ashford is a former Republican. He basically ran his uh, primary with a general election message touting the work that he'd done as a former congressman to bring a VA clinic back to the uh, to the district. So Eastman will face off against uh, Republican Congressman Don Bacon in a slightly in what is considered to be a slightly GOP leaning district in Omaha. Uh, it, this will be a key test to see if Democrats can, in fact, win by taking strongly progressive positions in swing states. National Democrats are very concerned that Eastman's single payer views is going to be a tough sell in a GOP leaning congressional district and specifically in one where a ton of jobs rely on the medical and insurance industries. Omaha, Nebraska. Where all the insurance, uh, where all your insurance money goes. 
Um, while the uh, DCCC congratulated Eastman on her win on uh, Wednesday morning, establishment Democrats, according to Cameron Joseph at TPM, are privately fretting that they may have hurt themselves in what they had considered to be a prime pickup opportunity. Progressive groups, however, counter that Eastman will be able to gin up uh, Democratic uh, the Democratic base yeah, a lot so better. Be able to turn them out because, as we've seen previously, you know, Democrats and liberals don't want to vote for Republican light. That's the theory. We'll find out if that's true uh, in a few months. It's going to be an interesting test for progressives like you, Desi Doyen, who have uh, long made that uh, that claim that the party needs to run farther to the so-called left. Uh, progressive uh, Campaign Change Committee co-head Stephanie Taylor said in a statement that Kara Eastman taught the Democratic establishment a lesson, the way to inspire voters. In 2018, is the campaign on a bold progressive agenda of Medicare for all, higher wages for workers, other economic populist ideas that help working families and challenge corporate power this, she says, is how Democrats can win in red, purple and blue districts and maximize a wave in 2018. Well, that may be true in a Democratic primary in a purple district. At least it was true in Omaha on Tuesday night. We'll see if that turns out to be the case in November. Back in Pennsylvania, self-funding philanthropist Scott Walker, Democrat, also defeated uh, Navy veteran Rachel Reddick. Uh, for the right to uh, run against Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick this fall in a very swingy suburban Philadelphia district. Uh, Reddick, like uh, Brad Ashford in Oregon, had previously been a Republican, or as you called them, Republican light. The fact that uh, Wallace... Uh, made sure that voters knew uh, in his bevy of campaign ads he outspent his uh, opponent there something like seven to one. And uh, she, Rachel Reddick, was supported again. That former Republican was supported by the National Democrats in the primary. Um, Wallace, by the way, is the uh, the grandson of um, FDR's vice president. Henry Wallace. Oh, the what do you progressive, know? Uh, his progressive vice president. Um, so uh, let's see, uh, just to the um, north of uh, th that Philadelphia district in uh, Pennsylvania, a pro-life and anti-immigration Democrat who had repeatedly praised President Trump. He lost. OK, good. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, he lost to a more mainstream, uh, although, although I should say more liberal, more progressive Democratic candidate. This was uh, the, the Trump-loving Democrat was a Northampton County District Attorney John Morganelli, a, a foe of so-called sanctuary cities, which we will discuss a bit with my guest in a moment. He had actually applied for a job under Donald Trump. And he ran as a Democrat. And he ran as a Democrat. And he had strong local support. He had high name ID, but he lost uh, to uh, former Allentown solicitor Susan Wilde, who is a more mainstream liberal who had the support of the pro-choice Emily's List folks. Uh, she was not the most progressive candidate in that particular race. There was a, another a local pastor, Greg Edwards, who had the backing of Bernie Sanders. He finished a very close third place. But uh, the combined vote showed how little appetite there is for a Trump apologist in today's Democratic Party. Oh, you think? 
so it was a mixed bag at best for national Democrats, at least from their point of view, from the point of view of the national party leadership as they look to retake the House. Uh, though very encouraging for those who believe that the party needs to become uh, more progressive. So we will see uh, women. So that means women did well. Progressives did well. You know who did not do well? Who? Members of Congress. Uh, specifically, NBC note calls them members of Congress. They don't specifically mention Republican members of Congress in particular. They're the ones who really had the most trouble on Tuesday. They write, it's not a uh, benefit to be a member of Congress or a former member. They note without mentioning that almost all of the folks that they cite who lost were Republicans. They just couldn't <laughs> mention that. They just say, oh, it's, being a member of Congress is no good. Being a Republican member of Congress particularly is no good. Um, they uh, note that after last week's primaries uh, in four different states, they observed that those with the title of congressman lost, citing Luke Messer and Todd Rokita, both Republican members of Congress in Indiana, Evan Jenkins, a, uh, a Republican congressman in West Virginia. He lost in his primary bid for the U.S. Senate nomination to run against Democratic uh, Senator Joe Manchin. Speaking of uh, Republican light, Joe yeah. Manchin there. Uh, and uh, incumbent Republican Congressman Rob Pittenger was ousted, was turfed out. He lost in his primary bid to retain his own seat in North Carolina to an even Trumpier Baptist minister who challenged him. So what happened uh, last night? Well, another congressman, Republican Raul Labrador, lost in the GOP primary for uh, the race for Idaho governor. Another current congressman, Lou Barletta, underperformed, did win, but barely uh, ended up underperforming in winning Pennsylvania's GOP Senate primary, barely taking the nod to face off against Democratic Senator Bob Casey and a uh, former ex-congressman. That would be Brad Ashford, who I mentioned. <laughs> uh, he lost in Nebraska. Yes, he's running as a Democrat, but he's a former Republican. They do cite the problems that the GOP appears to uh, be having in Pennsylvania, however, noting that Republicans uh, are not showing strength there. Two years after Trump shocked the political world by supposedly winning Pennsylvania in the general election, the GOP does not look very strong, at least based on last night's raw numbers in a number of races in the competitive GOP Senate primary between Barletta and uh, James Christiana, uh, that GOP primary got fewer votes, about 680,000, than incumbent Democratic Senator Bob Casey did, and he was running unopposed. So, Not a whole it, lot of enthusiasm uh, okay, no, there. No, <laughs> it doesn't seem. Uh, he, uh, running unopposed, he got 743,000 votes. Uh, so that's not a good sign for Republicans, at least for that seat in Pennsylvania. Uh, more Democrats than Republicans turned out to vote in the um, primary in Pennsylvania's first U.S. House district and in Pennsylvania's seventh House district, both of which are thought to be competitive general election races uh, in November. 
And uh, yet the enthusiasm by Democrats uh, far outpaced the Republicans. And finally, they note, by the way, NBC News, that it wasn't just progressives in the Democratic Party who did well on Tuesday. Two members of Pittsburgh's chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America defeated incumbent Democratic state representatives in Pennsylvania. So there's that. So uh, there's a few things for women and for Democrats and progressives to feel good about following Tuesday's primaries. We will see if that uh, pattern continues next Tuesday when voters in Arkansas, Georgia, oh, Georgia, 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting system still in place there, Uh, Kentucky and Texas, Uh, Also, where they have a bunch of unverifiable voting systems, they all head to the polls again next week. Texas uh, held their primaries already in March, but in more than 30 races, no candidate drew more than 50 percent of the vote. So they will have runoffs between the top two candidates in each party that uh, came in first and second. That's next Tuesday. Um, So, hey, a reminder, you folks in Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Texas and everywhere else. Are you registered to vote? Have you checked lately? Now's a good time to do that rather than waiting for a surprise at the polls on Election Day. Just saying. All right. Speaking of happy progressives, let's take a quick break here. We'll come back to discuss a U.S. Supreme Court decision earlier this week. Written by the far-right Justice Sam Alito, but largely concurred with by the court's liberals as well, all of which, at least for now, has made progressives very happy this week for a brief change from this stolen U.S. Supreme Court. That case ostensibly is about sports betting, but that's not why progressives are happy about the ruling. I will explain with my guest Ian Milheiser of Think Progress Justice Next on the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the broadcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Welcome back to your Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, believe it or not, this week we've got what progressive watchers, progressive watchers of the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court are describing as very, very, very good news, it seems, from the U.S. Supreme Court. Interestingly enough, those progressives are lauding an opinion, uh, affirmatively uh, lauding this opinion by the court on federalism and, yes, states' rights. And even more interestingly, the majority opinion in the case was written by far right-wing Justice Samuel Alito. 
What's going on here? Bedfellows getting stranger and stranger in the Trump era, it seems. But it is, it's uh, its not the specific case that those progressives are really so happy about, but what it means for a number of other issues and cases likely to come before the court in the Trump era in an opinion that Trump, whether he realizes it or not, will not likely make him very happy. On Monday, as legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern reports over at Slate, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a federal law that effectively prohibited sports betting in most states. Its decision is most obviously a victory for every state except Nevada, Stern writes, whose monopoly on legal sports gambling will soon be busted by competitors rushing to enter the huge multi-billion dollar market. But it's also a triumph for federalism, he says, as it imposes reasonable limits on the federal government's ability to strong arm states into enforcing laws that they would rather repeal. At Think Progress, Ian Milheiser reports the Supreme Court struck down a federal law on Monday that effectively prevented the state of New Jersey from legalizing sports betting which the state has been trying to do for their Atlantic City casinos now for many, many years. Though the court's decision in Murphy v. NCAA produced some disagreement about how much of this federal law needs to be excised, no justice on the court rose to the statute's defense, writes Milheiser. Indeed, the opinions, uh, the opinion issues in uh, Murphy was a fairly straightforward application of a doctrine the Supreme Court devised back in 1992. Justice Samuel Alito's majority opinion contains few surprises, writes Ian, for anyone familiar with the court's approach to the balance of power between the federal government and the states. The federal law at issue in Murphy was poorly drafted, he says, and seemed designed to run afoul of a long-standing states' rights doctrine. That doctrine, moreover as again confirmed by Alito in his opinion and really by the entirety of the court, both left and right this week, has implications well beyond the realm of sports betting. The court's ruling, argue both Milheiser and Stern, isn't simply good news for Atlantic City. It also bolsters the legal case against a number of issues long fought by the right, from the legalization of marijuana to physician-assisted suicide, to, very specifically, the Trump administration's crackdown on immigration and, yes, so-called sanctuary cities. Joining us now to explain why this ruling matters far beyond sports gambling and is seen seen as very good news, even though it was brought to us by Sam Alito, is constitutional law and Supreme Court expert and author Ian Milheiser, who serves as the long-toiling editor of Think Progress Justice and as the author of the book Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian Milheiser, sir, welcome back to the broadcast. Good to be back. Thanks so much. You bet. I, I want to uh, discuss why folks like you, of all people, and uh, Mark Stern over at, uh, over at Slate uh, appear to be simply giddy about this ruling authored by Sam Alito, of all people, uh, momentarily, and and why you see this as uh, much bigger than simply about sports betting. But on Tuesday, very quickly, uh, former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort received what you described to Think Progress as very bad news from a federal court in one of the two federal court cases where he's facing dozens of criminal indictments 
brought by special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into uh, Team Trump and their alleged coordination with Russia during the 2016 presidential campaign. So what was that very bad news for uh, Paul Manafort in federal court on Tuesday? Well, so the bad news is that um, he's not going to get rid of Mueller. Um, so the issue here, and it was always a Hail Mary that he was doing. This is this somewhat needlessly complex case where Manafort's actually facing charges in two different federal courts, mm-hmm. one in D.C. and one in Virginia. And in both courts, he claimed that Mueller doesn't have the authority to, um, to prosecute him, that it has to be a regular DOJ prosecutor, not the special prosecutor, if, if they're going to prosecute these crimes. The argument and being basically that, the, uh, that Robert Mueller doesn't have the mandate in his special counsel statute to actually bring the specific charges that he's bringing against, against Manafort? That's right. So the charges against Manafort arise from Manafort's dealings with the Russia-friendly government and the Russia-friendly party in Ukraine. And um, Mueller's authority extends to Trump campaign officials who had dealings with Russia, among other things. And his argument was basically, well, this, this isn't close enough to that. This doesn't fit within the special counsel's authority. And one of the two judges hearing the, these cases just said, no, 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 this, this, this is the Russia-friendly party. You know, this was basically a cat's ball for the Russian government. Of course this counts. And then she also gave a few other reasons, among other things, like the regulations that deal with the appointment of special counsel don't allow people to challenge a special counsel's appointment in court anyway. Um, so it was a nonsense theory that he was arguing. One of the two judges has rejected it. Um, the other judge apparently asked some tough questions from Mueller's attorneys at an, or- at, at an earlier hearing. Mm-hmm. He has a reputation sometimes for being hard on the party that he plans to rule in favor of, so I don't know if that means much. Um, but, you know, Trump at least was celebrating the fact that this one judge asked a few tough questions, and now, you know, the other judge has said that Manafort doesn't have a leg to stand on here. I expect the second judge is likely to say the same thing. Yeah. And that was the, the, the other judge was the one who was uh, appeared to reprimand the prosecutors for bringing the case against Manafort, essentially charging the prosecutors were only doing so in order to get to Trump. And then Trump tweeted about it and, and talked about it at, his, uh, at that NRA rally he spoke about, calling it uh, evidence that this was a phony Russia witch hunt. So can that other federal judge still uh, find in favor of Manafort and toss out the, the case on the basis that the charges go afield of, of Mueller's mandate here if he wants? I mean, conceivably he could, although that would have a limited effect because the charges in the D.C. court would, would still go forward. Um, I don't think this judge is likely to do that, though. I mean, the law here is really clear. Um, there's an appeals court precedent that, like, makes it even more clear that, that, that this isn't something that, that Manafort should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, like, I mean, I think reprimand is a bit too strong of a word. I mean, the, the judge asked questions. You know, he, he wanted to be clear about what the law is, which mm-hmm. is something that, that, that good judges do. Um, and, you know, I, I would be very surprised if, if, if the judge were to challenge Mueller's authority and even if this judge were to challenge Mueller's authority, and even if that was upheld then by, you know, higher court, mm-hmm. 
the only impact of it doesn't mean that Mueller, that, that Manafort gets off. It just means that instead of being prosecuted by Robert Mueller, he's prosecuted by a regular prosecutor mm. in the U.S. Attorney's Office. So it, it doesn't actually matter gotcha. all that much. And by the way, why aren't those two different uh, sets of indictments that Manafort is uh, facing, why, why aren't they combined into a single uh, court case in federal court rather than having to force him to fight two separate right. court cases at the same time? I mean, it, it is odd. I mean, what I think is going on here is that so one case is in D.C., one case is in Virginia, and it happens fairly frequently that you have someone who commits crimes in multiple jurisdictions that ordinarily would be prosecuted in multiple courts. And normally what happens in, the, in those cases is the prosecutors and the defense counsel just agree amongst themselves that, hey, it, it's, a, it's a pain to have two, three, seven, however many trials Mm-hmm. going on at the same time. Yeah. Let's consolidate all these cases. We'll agree to have this in one court, and that'll just make it simpler for everyone. Yeah. And M- Manafort just wouldn't agree to that. I, I suspect the oh. reason he wouldn't agree with that is because, you know, he he's playing political games here. Yeah. I, I mean, he, the, the reason why he filed this motion isn't because he thinks he's going to win. It's because on the off chance that he does win, then, like, he gets some good headlines that he can use to try to win the political fight. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even when the judge asked some questions, you know, that became a big news story that, you know, that, that, that Trump was talking about. Right. So there's some political logic to it, because the more trials you have going on, the more opportunities you have for, like, mm-hmm. a brief news cycle that looks good for <laughs> Team Trump. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that the outcome is going to be any different. I got you. I hadn't realized because uh, I was thinking, uh, you know, as a as a defendant, it would be easier to have it in one court rather than having to fight two separate cases in two separate courts. But uh, I didn't realize it was Manafort himself who was uh, keeping it that way, seemingly. Okay, on this uh, on the sports gambling law for a start, let's start. Right. W- w- what is the federal? What is it called? The uh, Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, or PASPA, was passed by Congress right. in '92, struck down by all of the justices on the U.S. Supreme Court this week in uh, in Murphy v. NCAA. Yeah, so this is. I mean, everything about this case is a little weird, um, including the the court's vote. There are only actually six votes to strike it down, although mm-hmm. the three in dissent didn't say that it's constitutional, mm-hmm. um, but, but this is a very poorly drafted law. Um, Congress has the power to ban sports betting if it wants to. Like, it could just pass a law saying um, that, it's illegal to, that, that it's illegal to, um, to bet on a sports game, and if you know, the federal government wants to enforce that law, they could use federal law enforcement, or they could authorize suits in federal court, mm-hmm. and that would be the end of it. Um, this law doesn't that though what this law does is it says that states with the exception of Nevada aren't allowed to pass their own laws authorizing casino or authorizing sports betting so instead of just banning sports betting outright which is totally constitutional it orders the states not to allow it um, and what the Supreme Court said in its opinion is it's an application of something called the anti-commandeering doctrine, which mm-hmm. basically says that the federal government isn't allowed to order the state to do something. Um, and the court said, I think, you know, fairly sensibly here, look, this is the court ordering state legislatures, in this case, not to do something. Right. That's not allowed. If Congress wants to ban something, they just need to go ahead and ban it. 
Um, and, you know, and, and so this poorly drafted ball was struck down for that reason. So, in, in other words, when it was passed in, uh, I guess, 1992, uh, sports betting was already legal in Nevada, but not in these other states. And the, the, the this federal law basically said state legislatures cannot change their law at this point regarding sports betting, which meant that Nevada got to keep theirs and nobody else got to change their law to make it legal to bet on on, on sports. Is that essentially what the court uh, determined here? More or less. I mean, I think it, it's still like if Nevada wanted to outlaw sports betting, it still could. Mm-hmm. Um, but it said that, like, yeah, it, it said that states can't change their own law. Okay. Um, and what the Supreme Court said is that you just, you just can't, Congress can't write a statute that way. You know, if they want to achieve the same goal, they could have just banned sports betting. I mean, potentially they could have even banned sports betting everywhere except in Nevada, although, like, that in and of itself might have, that, that might create different problems. Mm-hmm. But what they can't do is they can't order, they can't tell a state legislature wh- how to do its job. I got gotcha. you. Um, and, yeah. And, and, and so in, in that case, I mean, if a, uh, if a state wanted to pass a law and it was unconstitutional or if the federal government objected to it, federal government could pass a law that would apply to all 50 states or it could be challenged in court as far as its constitutionality. But other than that, the federal government under this uh, federalism premise cannot tell a, a, a state one way or another what they can pass or not pass as a law. That's right. And to be clear, so there's another doctrine called preemption, mm-hmm. which essentially, which says that federal law is the supreme law of the land, and if there's a conflict between a federal law and a state law, the federal law triumphs. Mm-hmm. So if Congress passes a law saying, you know, we hereby ban all sports betting, mm-hmm. and New Jersey passes a law saying, we hereby allow sports betting, mm-hmm. the federal law would trump the, the state law. So it's not like states have gained some new special power right. to tell the federal government what to do here. I mean, really, all that this case is, is it's, it's saying to Congress, like, next, if you want to pass this law, don't write it in a stupid way. <laughs> you, you know, yeah. just, just write the law to say that you're banning sports betting rather than banning states from allowing sports betting. Okay, now with all of that said... I don't actually give a damn one way or another about sports betting. I don't know if right. you do either. Uh, not, not particularly. Yeah, but you argue uh, over at Think Progress that this is actually very, very good news above and beyond sports betting. So how will this apply to other issues, as you argue, uh, specifically one of the central issues that you focus on in your piece of Think Progress, Ian, is, uh, well, Trump's immigration crackdown, Jeff Sessions is. DOJ battle against uh, sanctuary, so-called sanctuary cities. Right. So the, okay, so the issue here, so it's important to understand what a sanctuary city is. Mm-hmm. Um, so a sanctuary city is this term that someone dreamed up for a city which says our police force will not be used to enforce federal immigration law. Mm-hmm. So, you know, various cities and some states have laws saying that you know, if there's an if there's an undocumented immigrant in detention, that immigrant won't be turned. You know, the police won't turn that person over to ICE. Mm-hmm. They won't like do record searches to help ICE 
identify who in their jails are undocumented, is an undocumented immigrant, things and, like that. And, and, and to be clear, um, that's because uh, those local and uh, state police and so forth, they fear that if they start doing that, then uh, people in immigrant communities will no longer co- right. talk to police because they'll be turned over and that will be, lead to huge crime, uh, you know, immigrant communities then being targeted because they know that they're not going to go to the police. So those are the sanctuary cities that were the so-called sanctuary cities we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Like often law enforcement opposes, like doesn't want to cooperate with mm-hmm. ICE because... Right. You know, if you're trying to solve a burglary mm-hmm. and the witness to the burglary is, you know, is undocumented, that person's not going to talk to you if they fear that you're going to go talk to ICE. And none of those sanctuary cities, by the way, uh, prevent ICE or DHS, et cetera, from coming in and doing their own job if they want, doing their own investigation, coming in and, and, and arresting people. It just says we're not going to use our facilities to help you out to do your job. The state facilities. That, that's exactly right. Okay. So the federal government can, infor- can enforce its own laws right. you know, whenever it wants to with its own agents, and it can spend its own money. Right. But you know, this, what this anti-commandeering doctrine is, you know, the same doctrine that was in play in the sports betting case, mm-hmm. is it says that the federal government can't order a state to use its own cops and its own resources and spend its own money to enforce a federal law. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if the federal government wants to deport someone, it has to do it. In, it has to do it itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I think is, is you know relevant about the sports betting case. Is like, I mean, the sports betting case. You know, I like, like you. I don't really care that much about mm-hmm. betting on sports teams. Um, but it shows that like the court has you know coalesced around this anti. I can't speak around this anti-commandeering <laughs> doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, it shows that, I mean, you know, much of the support for this doctrine is with the court's right flank. And it suggests that when Trump's attack on these so-called sanctuary cities comes up, the Supreme Court's not going to be very friendly to it. And the reason why the Supreme Court is not going to be very friendly to it is because Trump doesn't have the power to order local police to do anything. Local police are only responsible to the state government, maybe their city government, mm-hmm. and that's it. You know, the, you know, the, if the federal government wants to enforce federal law, it has to use federal officials and federal money to do it. So he's essentially uh, your argument here is that when Trump and I guess Jeff Sessions sued the state of California, uh, saying that you must do these things, you you can't your your sanctuary state law or whatever it is that was passed out here in California that that you can't do that because we're the federal government and we don't want you to you can't pass that law and essentially that's the same as the uh, sports case saying telling a state what they can and cannot pass that's exactly right so you know California is allowed to decide what laws it has on its own books Mm -hmm. it's allowed to decide what its own police will do um, and I mean, and I should note that, like, this doesn't necessarily help people in red states. Like, Texas is also allowed to decide what it wants to do with its own police. And if Texas decides that it will voluntarily agree to let its police, you know, help ICE out and help out Trump mm-hmm. in rounding people up, then, you know, Texas is allowed to choose to help the federal government right. if, it, if it wants to. But what the Constitution provides in this case is that states have a choice, mm-hmm. and California can choose not to cooperate with ICE. 
Uh, Mark uh, Joseph Stern over at Slate argues, for example, that under uh, the decision, under the Murphy decision at the court this week, Congress could not, for example, pass a law forbidding any more states from legalizing marijuana. So if they suddenly said, "Okay, there's however many states are allowing it, but we're not going to allow any more. They, they can't do it, um, though if the federal government wanted to, they could still pass a law attempting anyway to forbid all legal marijuana sales in, in all states, um, correct? Right. I, I mean, in so, fact, that, that law is on the book. Mm-hmm. Like it's still, it is That's still true. a federal crime to possess marijuana, and I, I would recommend highly against doing it in front of an FBI agent. Yes, exactly. Um, now, progressives yeah. are, 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 are not usually supportive of states' rights arguments uh, taking precedent over federal laws. So are there, some, are there some issues, Ian Milheiser, where this might work against progressive interests, as, as you see? Oh, there, there are plenty of examples of that. I, so, I mean, this anti-commandeering doctrine was a creation of conservatives. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I believe the first case, um, the first case applying the, the law involved an effort to deal with hazardous waste. Mm-hmm. The second case involved um, an effort to uh, regulate guns. So, you know, in the past, this has been something that, that conservatives love. And, you know, my take on it is like, you know, if the, if the doctrine didn't exist and I mm-hmm. was a Supreme Court justice, I wouldn't have been one of the people who voted to create it from nothing. Mm-hmm. But it's been around for 26 years. It's, it's a workable rule. It hasn't caused that much trouble. There are easy workarounds if you want to work around it. And in this case, it's going to be very helpful in reining in a lot of what Trump wants to do. So, you know, what's sauce for the goose should be sauce for the, for the gander here. You know, if, if Republicans can use this thing to go after gun laws they don't like, then, you know, other people should be able to use it to go after Trump's stupid uh, immigration policy. Well, there you go. And you got uh, Alito and Kagan uh, both agreeing that this law violates the Tenth Amendment. So, you know, well, I guess we'll we'll take some agreement where we can get it these days. Uh, and frankly, uh, Ian, uh, b- you know, between the coming likely legalization of pot everywhere and now the likely legalization of sports gambling everywhere, those two issues alone, uh, you know, are going to be huge revenue enhancers for states. So I think that even these so-called conservatives should be celebrating this, should be favoring this uh, decision this week so they can, uh, you know, avoid raising taxes on rich people and corporations for a bit longer and take in all that tax money from from pot and gambling. It, it is a great time for vice taxes. <laughs> yeah, apparently it is. So see, there's <laughs> something that the right and left can agree on, even in the Trump era. Just don't tell Donald Trump because he's not going to like it when it comes to his anti-immigration thuggery. So uh, we'll take that good news where we can get it. It is uh, a very rare moment, so I will take it. Ian Milheiser, uh, thanks for uh, explaining all of this to us today. You can uh, find Ian's work at thinkprogress.org. You can and should follow him on the Twitters at imilheiser. And don't forget to buy his book, Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian, always great talking with you, my friend. All right. Thanks so much. You bet. All right. Quick break. And we are back with a few more minutes and uh, a few more positive stories. See, I told you no bridge jumping necessary on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. There was a a few more races on Tuesday. I didn't have time to hit them all, but this was Desi Doyen, I know of interest to you because this was a woman, which you are, a progressive, (laughs) which you are, and a Native American, which, as it turns out, you also are. Well, I descend from, yes. Uh, yeah, this is a really interesting race up in Idaho. Paula Jordan, she's running to be the first Native American governor ever in the United States. She won the Democratic nomination in the Idaho governor race, and uh, she beat a two—she is a two-term state lawmaker from the Coeur mm-hmm. d'Alene tribe. Uh, she beat out an establishment Democrat on Tuesday night. Another establishment Democrat exactly. who went down. Exactly. So she's going to go up against Republican Lieutenant Governor Brad Little in November. She's oh, another Brad. Oh, this is another conflict of interest for us here at the Bradcast. <laughs> I don't know Brads. who to root for now. Uh, yeah, she, I have to root against the Brad? She's only 38 years old. She was running on a very progressive platform, raising the minimum wage, legalizing marijuana, expanding health care, fighting climate change, a big thing for me as well. And in her victory speech on Tuesday, she said, quote, I didn't win this race by Democrats alone. We won this race by everyone. And she even had uh, endorsements from big progressive national groups like Planned Parenthood, People for the American Way, Democracy for America. And yet the National Democrats were still against her? That's right. People for Bernie Sanders, Indivisible. She even got Cher's endorsement. Oh, well, if Cher is in favor, I'll well, count then, me in. There you go. So, um, But the Vox.com says that her chances of actually winning are slim. Because... So. It's Idaho? Because it's Idaho, and it's still quite dominated by Republican, rural, and suburban districts. And that may be. But you know what? This year, uh, uh, count no one out, especially the voters. Count no one out. The the voters, if they show up everywhere, including Idaho, you know, we're seeing again today in North Carolina, in these red states, uh, on Wednesday, thousands of teachers from across the Tar Heel State, that's North Carolina, they skip school, they put on red shirts, they marched through North Carolina's capital, demanding a raise, along with more state funding for elections from, uh, I'm sorry, for education from lawmakers who say they have been uh, shortchanging public schools for years. In addition to long overdue raises, the teachers want to boost per pupil spending just to meet the national average. They got a shout-out from the uh, now-Democratic governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, who noted that North Carolina is ranked 37th in the country in teacher pay. He said that is unacceptable. The state also ranks 39th in per-pupil spending. But, you know, boy howdy, have they been able to give tax breaks to uh, coal companies. Under under their uh, previous Republican governor, Pat McCrory, who just happened to be the CEO 
of one of the nations, if not the nation's yeah, largest he, uh, he was energy. A, he was CEO of Duke Energy, yep. which focused on coal. Imagine that. And so they were able to give, you know, tax breaks to those folks while shortchanging the students. And now the teachers in North Carolina, now they have taken to the streets. They are ticked about it. And uh, this was follows what happened in West Virginia earlier this year where there was a nine day strike. Uh, we saw teachers marching in Arizona, Oklahoma, Kentucky, all so-called red states. So I think... You underestimate the mood of the nation at your peril this year, this November, if you just count out states like Idaho because they are, oh, so, quote unquote, red. Oh, I agree with you. I think nothing is inevitable. Nothing is set in stone. It's all going to come down to turnout. So these are not just Republican states, but these are largely women who are hitting the streets, who are furious at their Republican state legislatures. Yep. So, yeah, it's all about turnout. I'd say everywhere, everything, everybody is up for grabs this year, or at least it should be. If yeah. people uh, register to vote, show up to vote, have their vote counted, counted accurately in a way they know it was counted accurately. So it's a long fight ahead, but I think uh, you'd make a mistake to count any state out at this point. That's one of the reasons I hate calling them red and blue. There are no red and blue states. There are purple states. There are American states. That's what this country is. <laughs> yes, it is. Don't get me started, or I will throw myself over a bridge. All right, my thanks to uh, our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Ian Milheiser of Think Progress Justice, and to all of you for joining us today. It is uh, always a great honor to have you here. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. While you're there, please consider uh, stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we do every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters where I hope you will find us follow us and share us in every way you can i am simply the brad blog is that it that's it that's it until we meet again i'm brad friedman good luck world